Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have a two-guest special this week, and we're going to speak to them in addition to other issues about the police murder of Tyree Nichols. Uh, and both guests are extremely equipped and appropriate to ask questions about that. Because our first guest is journalist Ian Kennedy, who just wrote a book about race, racism, and sports in Canada called On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport. And the second is Michael Lee of the Washington Post, who writes about sports and society. And so I wanna speak to him a little bit about the NBA's response to the police murder of Tyree Nichols. I also have a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down award and more, but first, let's get started with Ian Kennedy. Uh, Ian Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thanks for having me. I mean, we're going to speak about this book, On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport, and it seems uh, tin-eared and a bit unreal to start this conversation about racism, sports, and all of these issues without first asking you about uh, your reaction to the release of the videotape about the police murder of Tyree Nichols, uh, how you were processing that and what you think we need to take from this. Well, of course, it's another horrific incident of police brutality and violence against the black community. And I think that uh, a lot of people have looked at the fact that the police officers were black, but it's an institutional issue, not an individual issue. Uh, systemic racism has been built into the policing system for the entirety of its existence. It's how the police officers were trained. Uh, it's how they were taught to deal with black communities and uh, just all around white supremacy and uh, institutional racism has been founded in this. So that the color of the officers really makes no difference in this fact uh, and definitely does not take away from the fact that reform is needed in this process of uh, how we deal with with black communities and, and policing and, and that transfers over to sport too they're both institutions that are upheld by systems of racism that were built on them yeah uh, the willing ignorance of the fox news sector of our country that's trying to frame this in terms of being some sort of black on black crime to me is openly and willingly and proudly and intentionally obtuse because part of understanding this is so basic and simplistic, which is if Tyree Nichols is white, he doesn't get stopped in the first place. And secondly, I don't know about you, Ian, but I was raised to understand the police as blue first, black second. It's also very much a part of our, of our culture, understanding that from Fuck the Police by NWA, there's lines about that, uh, the movie Boys in the Hood, I mean, it, it just it, it is such a staple of culture of understanding that, oh, a black police officer, I will be safe, uh, does not exist. So I think there, there's such a willing and intentional obtuseness on behalf of some of these commentators right now that it's, it's frankly maddening because they think it gives them a pass on the questions of race and racism because they're racist. Absolutely. They're ignoring the, the system that was built on racism and anti-black racism specifically, rather than looking at the individuals there and saying, well, it can't be racism if it's black, a black police officer. But of course, the, the entire system, how these these officers were were taught to approach 
uh, anyone, a, a black person just driving a car as we saw again here, you know, nothing, nothing wrong whatsoever, uh, except for the way the system has taught us to respond towards black communities. And that's, uh, it's a real travesty what uh, some people are doing in the media by reframing this in a narrative that uh, doesn't really make any sense. And reinforces racism, of course. Um, well, I, I really did want to have you on. I mean, I, uh, to talk about your book, which of course I think is part of anti-racist education. So it fits very much with the issues we're trying to discuss. So let's talk about this book, On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport. Please break down your article and also the very interesting structural way that you tell this, tell your story of race and racism in the sports world. Yeah, so of course, you know, the title itself comes from a famous all-black baseball team in Canada called the Chatham Colored All-Stars that are from my little hometown. Um, and uh, the book itself was really stemmed out of years and years of, of not hearing stories related to uh, Black or Indigenous or uh, Japanese Canadian individuals in sport, uh, even though I'd been writing about sports for decades and uh, not hearing those stories and then finding all of these incredible athletes that uh, I knew nothing about was really eye-opening to me. And uh, so I, I went about just collecting these stories. I always talk about myself as a story preservationist in this standpoint, not a storyteller, because they're really not my stories to tell. I'm, I'm just trying to amplify and, and preserve them. But uh, I also, in the structure of the book, you know, each chapter starts with a personal recollection or connection. And uh, that was on the, the direct advice of uh, the Black and Indigenous leaders. They said, just like we talked about before, that I was part of the system. I'm part of the structure that was built. Um, I obviously, at some points, perpetrated the, uh, you know, the ideology and upheld it that, uh, and participated in the systems of of anti-Indigenous or anti-Black racism. And uh, so they they really wanted me to place myself within those stories as part of the collective issue of systemic racism, not just as a person that's talking about it or teaching about it, uh, but as a participant in that system of oppression. Mm. Well, of, of course, we don't have a choice in that effect, because the system itself, as you said, is racist. Uh, and these structures are racist. So it, it creates a system of complicity either as well. So you either resist the system, you withdraw from the system or you're consciously or sub or unconsciously part of the system. When did you first become conscious of the world as it exists in the world that you were a part of? Well, I was raised in a very rural, uh, right-wing Christian uh, community and uh, racism was steeped in everything. I heard my teachers make racist jokes, uh, the church, uh, you know, family, friends. It was just something that was an everyday activity. In, in my community in particular, it was uh, anti-Indigenous racism because we had a First Nations community bordering us. Um, and uh, there weren't many Black individuals in our community. It was very uh, homogeneously white. And so it took me going away from my town to have any understanding whatsoever of uh, of that issue in our world. And really, uh, I also became a teacher. And that was the, the true awakening for me it was not just uh, learning about it or reading about it, but, you know, sitting beside people of different backgrounds, 
um, different faiths, different walks of life, different socioeconomic statuses, and uh, identifying them as people and humanizing the issues, not just hearing the things I've been told, because I think that that's a portion of this book as well is not just telling stories about sports and not just telling stories about racism, but really connecting it to the humans that are there, getting to know them as people, uh, knowing their life stories and what made them work. Because if we can humanize these issues and see the people involved in them, uh, it really allows us to kind of deconstruct our preconceived notions and and get to the bottom of why we feel the way we do and, and attacking our own biases. Well, you know, one of the things I found so interesting about your book from my perspective, who's read a lot about racism in sports and written a lot about racism in sports, was the Canadian perspective of it all, which is just different than the kinds of history that I'd read. And you spoke about the centrality of anti-Indigenous sentiment uh, in the culture in Canada, but I'm hoping maybe you could speak about some other ways as well that you might can compare and contrast racism, whether it's in sport or in society to the United States, like, where is it the same? Where do you think it's different? So my listeners can sort of understand, uh, the oxygen that you've been breathing and coming up with this kind of data. Well, I don't think that there's, of course, our borders are just these made up colonized kind of pretend lines that we've drawn in the sand. And, and the issues of racism don't just magically stop between Canada and the United States. Uh, we had slavery, both countries, uh, in turn, Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans during World mm. War II. A lot uh, of people don't know that. That's true. And there were boarding schools for Indigenous people in, in the United States, just like we had residential schools here. So the difference in Canada, I believe, is that we present ourselves, we we create this, this identity around ourselves of this all-encompassing, all-welcoming society, but we really aren't. We we just present ourselves in a way, and, and sometimes that makes the systems of racism even more powerful and more dangerous. But in terms of uh, the Indigenous communities here, of course, we had a system of residential schools that separated families from their three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old children, took them hundreds of miles away, um, you know, punished them if they spoke any form of their language, practiced any culture, spoke to any family members. And it was a system of genocide. It was uh, a cultural genocide, removing all forms of Indigenous uh, background, spirituality, everything was gone, ripped away. Um, and there was immense trauma of abuse at those facilities. But sport itself actually played a very powerful role in those facilities as well. There's a, a quote in my book that talks about how the arena, the hockey arena, was actually more important at residential schools than the classroom was. Mm -hmm. And that's because in Canada, as many people probably know, when you think about Canada, you often think about ice hockey. And um, so ice hockey was used as a tool of, of cultural assimilation in those facilities. It was introduced to Indigenous youth to, air quotes, make them feel more Canadian, whatever that actually means. So it was a real nationalistic tool. Uh, and then, of course, as the youth became, uh, fell in love with sport, as we all would, you know, it's a fun game. Any, any sport is fun. Baseball was another big one at those facilities. Sport became a tool of, uh, discipline so that when the kids loved it, it could be quickly taken away. And and not only that, but the, you know, the, 
the colonial ideas of rules, uh, conquest, uh, you know, just defeating your opponent at every single turn, those are ingrained and built into sports. And those weren't part of indigenous culture necessarily in sport. Uh, a game like lacrosse was a very spiritual thought of as medicine in indigenous communities here. So uh, the way that we viewed sport has been a tool for that assimilation and that uh, uh, anti-indigenous racism since our systems were founded. Yeah, and that, that certainly speaks to not only the history of indigenous suppression in the United States and the use of sports in institutions like the Carlisle School, probably most famously because of Jim Thorpe's uh, attendance there and domination of Dwight D. Eisenhower in what's considered one of the most important games. I think that I, I raise that because it also shows how sports, one of the things that's so amazing and insidious about it is that how malleable it is. So you have the suppression and changing of indigenous culture to meet this European standard of sport or Western European or Western standard of sport, but then it's repackaged as almost like this, this victory and ascension when they're a vic when they beat like Dwight D. Eisenhower, for example, and, and it, it's, do you understand where I'm coming from here? Cause, cause Absolutely. it's like, instead of it looking like the pounding of racial oppression, it looks instead like almost like a, uh, an incubator for a different kind of nationalism that everybody, even liberals can appreciate. The game of lacrosse in particular in the book we talk about because it moved from field lacrosse uh, and then it was brought indoors by a man that uh, saw the use of, of indoor hockey arenas in the summer and needed to transport it there. And very quickly, uh, this William Beers, he started referring to it as Canada's national sport, which, of course, you know, lacrosse existed in North America in many forms for centuries before white settlers ever stepped foot here. So it it became kind of this proud moment of this uh, this capturing and reframing of the sport away from what it used to be into something else. But uh, another individual in, in my book, this Ed Penance, actually went to Carlisle School. He's from Wapulal and First Nation, which is right beside my community. And uh, he was also taught baseball at uh, Shingwak Residential School. And uh, he played with Jim Thorpe. He was uh, at that school and he soon became what some would consider the first indigenous baseball player in the majors. Um, he was only the first because he would be what would be considered under blood quantum as the first uh, full-blooded, which is of course a horrific uh, terminology to refer to anyone, the whole idea of of uh, white supremacy, of, of white blood versus any other is uh, just a, you know, eugenics nightmare, but he, yeah, we, uh, we speak a lot about with, with great derision and condemnation, the one drop rule of Hitler's Germany with regards to Jews when we've practiced that to different degree here. And that raises the question of colorism, of course, like how did that operate in terms, because you write about this in the book about uh, indigenous uh, integration into the world of baseball. And is that just a function of colorism and why were indigenous people accepted when black people were not or yeah. dark skinned uh, Latinx people? It's, it's a really complex issue, but there was kind of this racial hierarchy that people operated on. And there is a man in my book that uh, 
um, talks about this is H.A. Tanzer. He was a, a educator and he wrote a book kind of ranking the races. Um, and he was one of the most, of course, anti-Black racists that was out there. He uh, upheld the sport of cricket as a, a more civilized way of sport over baseball, which he called, you know, a degenerates game. And that was a very clear messaging of the difference between who played cricket and who played baseball. But uh, that Chatham Colored All-Stars baseball team that the book is named for, um, they actually were playing a uh, semi-professional team from Toledo and uh, they had to pretend that they were Indigenous because they did have one Indigenous baseball player on their team. But the only way that the major league's rules would allow those two teams to play is if no one on the Chatham Colored All-Stars baseball team was black. So they had to take on the identity of their one Indigenous player to be able to fit into the major league rules of not having any professionals compete against black players at the time. So really, it is this uh, colorism, as you said, where there's these different uh, uh, hierarchies that we've upheld forever. Can I just ask you, um, and if you don't know the answer, this is fine. Uh, that that that's fascinating what you just said about the the major league baseball rules do you know if that those rules and we all know those rules existed of course uh do you know if those rules were put to paper or whether it was the infamous gentleman's agreement which was used to keep out black players i believe that for the most part those were all gentlemen's agreements the the unwritten rules much like many sundown towns or or any of those citizen society upheld um barriers that were put into place for the vast majority most weren't put on paper to to continue to you know make people feel like they were good like they were uh doing the right thing and that it was just a normal item that had always existed uh, because as soon as you put it on paper of course then it can be challenged legally and that's uh you know a, a way that they upheld those systems but I, I believe it was just a gentleman's agreement uh you know people who listen to this show know that uh I do have this soft spot for boxing, and I wanted to ask you, uh, everybody knows who has a familiarity with boxing history about the famous Jack Johnson, Great White Hope fight against Jim Jeffries, uh, where Johnson as the champion uh, humiliated Jeffries after Jeffries openly made it about you know race war, basically. Uh, but a lot of people don't know who Johnson won that title from in the first place. I mean, I knew it was a guy named Tommy Burns, and I knew Johnson uh, went around the world uh, as a way of trying to drum up interest in a fight against Tommy, Tommy Burns. I had no idea that Tommy Burns was Canadian, and yeah. I had no idea that he, for the time, actually had a lot of really good things to say about yeah, his he, he opportunity. And could, could you tell us about Tommy Burns? Yeah, Tommy Burns refused to allow uh, race to become an issue. He wanted to fight whoever was the best boxer in the world. And uh, he really upheld that throughout his life where uh, he eventually started managing black boxers and bringing them into uh, his venues. But he wanted the championship of the world to be the championship of the world, not the white champion, not the black champion. And of course, stemming from that fight to... Uh, we had a decade of, of the search for the, the Great White Hope, which is a chapter in, in my book where a, a young man from a, a rural community here named Arthur Pelkey becomes one of these Great White Hopes, which 
basically they were attempting to vanquish for lack of a better word um the the black men that they felt were threatening their sport and of course this is you know one of the the most obvious cases of anti-black racism that we can ever see of course you hear the word great white hope and we a lot of people probably don't even know what that meant they've heard that phrase a number of times in their lives and had no idea that it was stemmed in uh the idea that white athletes needed to reclaim a sport from black athletes yeah they also i think of course i know i didn't know that it was a phrase coined by jack london who we all read usually in elementary school or junior high call the wild and the like uh which, which is also an interesting because then you have to reckon with jack london's history if you're going to talk about that in school which is its own very complicated history through socialism to white supremacy to uh even a kind of fascism if you have read the book the iron heel um it's an interesting dynamic too but i don't know we don't really get that in schools especially not in florida by the way because you could go to prison on felony charges i also love the part in the book about fergie jenkins who i was always a huge fan of um one of the few black starting major league baseball pitchers in the hall of fame over 3000 strikeouts one of the best twitter feeds out there and um and someone who threw for 3000 strikeouts and of course was canadian what did fergie jenkins mean to canada and wh why did you give him such a special place in the book well fergie's from chatham my hometown again and uh, his father actually played for that chatham colored all-stars team um, so, of course, you know, the title of that comes from uh, the fact that that baseball team was playing in 1934 for the provincial, which would be like a state championship here. And they're an out away from winning the title. And the umpires threw their arms up in the air and called the game on account of darkness um, at four o'clock in the afternoon when it was not dark. And so the the ancestors and the players from the team say that the only reason it was too dark was because there was nine black baseball players on that field. And uh, so Fergie's dad, who was a chef and a chauffeur, uh, Ferguson Jenkins Sr., played on that team the year after that title for the most part. But uh, Fergie grew up on the same field as that all-black baseball team, you know, learning from all of these, these greats that dealt with so much. And he's really a representation of a couple of different things. Of course, he faced uh, very little in town here uh, in our Canadian community of racism because of probably in part because of his athletic abilities, he was given entrance into areas that others were not. But uh, when he went to the United States, of course, he faced incredible racism. He was uh, shocked when on his first road trip, he had to send someone else into the restaurant to get him burgers and he had to stay on the bus. Um, and Fergie became the symbol of uh, really a, a black role model in our community for years that uh, of black excellence because we talk about black history but i think a lot of the times we need to be celebrating not just talking about histories of slavery slavery and segregation because those are really histories of white settlers and and colonialism not just uh, of black history but fergie's become this all-encompassing being he's larger than life in our community and in our country because he was the first canadian inducted into the canadian or into the uh baseball hall of fame in cooperstown um so he's just really this this figure, but I tell one story in the book as well, where even in Canada, uh, some of the, the white supremacist symbol, symbolism is 
really featured prominently. And uh, I tell a story about following this individual to work every morning and the tailgate of his pickup truck is painted with a Confederate flag. And uh, as I, we both pulled into our community, uh, me usually, a, a, you know, just a few hundred meters behind him, we would simultaneously pass this sign that said, welcome to Chatham, home of Fergie Jenkins. And I always found the, the immense irony in that, that this white supremacist with a Confederate flag painted on his truck uh, was passing into a city that was known for this famed black baseball player. And that I wondered if he would think about that as he passed that sign every morning or mm. what he thought about it all, because I think those are really human aspects to the story. But uh, yeah, Fergie is, he's just so beloved in, uh, in Chicago, in Canada, uh, North America wide. He's, he's really this amazing figure, as you said, including on Twitter. <laughs> Um, well, we're, we're running out of time. Thank you so much for your time. I, I'd love to know uh, what else you want us to know about the book before we go. If there's any other message you'd like to give for On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport. I just think it's the role that sport plays in our society. We talk about these systemic practices and issues, and sport can be a spot where we can overcome these, where we can reclaim sports, uh, where communities can reclaim their identity through sport, but the, the the power of sport to be almost a tool or a weapon uh, and uphold these systems is really powerful. And I think we can look at that in our own communities at this micro history level of storytelling and preserving these stories and seeing the, the larger picture that, you know, why aren't there as many black NHL players? It's because arenas were segregated for so long. Uh, and we hear the same stereotypes about things like swimming. So the, the power of sport, the tool that sport was, is so incredible that uh, I really think we need to look back at these individual small stories and take the messaging from that. And I, I hope that On Account of Darkness does that for people. Amen. And something we always ask people on this show, especially people who write books, is about the music they listen to uh either when they're writing or what they listen to after a writing session to sort of veg out a little bit what what was your soundtrack to putting this book together i think i might have joked with you about this once on twitter because uh one of my early uh early morning writing things would be when my daughter woke up uh, i would have the, the paw patrol songs in the background or something like that so it's a really uh, abnormal thing, but that was my time to write. But usually when I really wanted to get into my own head, uh, I'd put on something with a lot more ambient sound, whether it was James Blake or Bonnie Vare or something like that to, to kind of zone me in and zone me out simultaneously and just let my, uh, my thoughts and feelings about an issue come out. So that would probably be where I'd go, but more Paw Patrol if I had to embarrassingly tell you the truth. Ah, nothing embarrassing about it. Uh, the, the book is called On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport. The author is Ian Kennedy. Ian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. So, Michael Lee, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Man, you know, it's always a pleasure to be with, to, uh, be with you. So, yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, so everybody, at least in the United States, is reacting uh, w- with extreme repulsion and, and anger about the Tyree Nichols video, the police murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. And everybody is also tracking what athletes, but particularly what the NBA uh, players are going to say about it on social media. I guess the first thing I wanted to ask is, one, if you think that's societally healthy, first of all, that that this immediate magnet-like attention to what are NBA players saying about this atrocity. Mm -hmm. And and then the second thing is, um, what obligation does the player have to educate themselves, think the issue through before they post? Wow, it's a loaded question. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we're jumping right in uh, with the heavy stuff. Um, uh, well, the, the the first question, or the first to answer your first question, um, well, I guess I can answer the whole thing together. Uh, I honestly feel like we've gotten to a state where we don't appreciate athletes who are knowledgeable and speak out on topics um, to the magnitude that we should, and that it's not something we should expect but it's something that we should take pleasure in if it's productive and healthy, right? Because a lot of times, you know, players will speak out on situations that they haven't done the homework, they haven't done the reading or the research, and they look foolish, and it does damage to the whole athlete um, activism movement. You know, if you're not up on a topic, if you're not following it or, or studying it, or if you're not just up on basic, you know, uh, studies that Ron DeSantis would like to eliminate <laughs> uh i think sometimes you need to uh you know do 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 the homework um and but i also think that we shouldn't just run to athletes or celebrities whenever these issues come up because that's not their responsibility first and foremost i don't believe it is i believe they're, they're, their number one priority is to entertain us and if they want to grace us with their wisdom in areas that they know outside of their profession then I'm I'm all for it because I think that adding their their weight their celebrity to a topic can help open up some eyes, especially from some of their fans who may not be aware of what their favorite player has gone through in his life. So, um, but I also don't think that we should expect players to know about everything that's going on. We should expect them to know about their job. We should expect them to know about what they invest most of their time in their life into being, which is a great, you know, professional athlete. But when you ask them to step outside of their realm and all of a sudden be leaders of social movements, I think that that's where we kind of get, get it twisted. And I think part of that is because we have access to these guys, they're visible and they're available. Like um, when you're a basketball player, you have to talk after every game, you have to talk after, you know, most practices, uh, and same with football or basketball, you got to talk after practice. Or So there, there's, there's an opportunity to talk to them. We only get to talk to, say, 
Denzel or, you know, uh, Anthony Mackie or somebody after when their movie's coming out. Right. So mm -hmm. then we could talk to them then, but they, they can sort of, they can sort of not say anything unless they want to post something on social media or talk to J Cole or some rapper or something like that. Like we don't get access to them as frequently as we do athletes and they're all prominent figures. So uh, a lot of times their message has a chance to be heard a lot more than, than others. Mm. But um, I, I just, I just think that there's a responsibility that if you do speak out that you have a knowledge of the subject you're, you're speaking on. And also, you know, like I said, a knowledge of black history and why the situation is the way it is in this country, which I don't think a lot of people put enough time and effort into. They, they look at what's happening in the here and now and don't understand the systemic issues that led to those situations. I want to take everything you just said, and I'm going to ask you if you could apply it to what LeBron James said after seeing the video and then the response that LeBron has gotten from particularly movement people, black activists, people in the streets. And I want to ask you if it's fair game, given that he's more than just a basketball player at this point. I mean, to put it mildly. If now, it's to, to, be, to be specific, you mean the I'm going to uh, say our own worst enemy. Yeah, he uh, said, yeah, he said we are our own worst enemies, which you know, of course, for, for a lot of folks, they read that and they feel like LeBron is saying that this is almost an issue of black on black crime because the police officers or most of them were, were of African descent. But instead of it being an issue of white supremacist culture and police departments and an issue of police violence and the over policing of the black community, he says, instead, we are our own worst enemies. And I, I just want to ask, based on what you said in the first question, um, do you think it's fair game to say, hey, LeBron, you're wrong about this? Or are we asking too much for athletes to somehow have the perfect response? But then you have to factor in that LeBron is more than just, quote unquote, an athlete. So yeah. it's a lot. So how yeah. do you take all that in? Well, uh, when I first saw it, I was like, man, I sure hope she's talking about Rob Palenka and Jenny Buss. <laughs> <laughs> Because, I mean, the Lakers are really struggling right now. They, they could be in a much better position if they made some moves. So, you know, sometimes you can be your own worst enemies if you're not aggressively trying to boost your uh, boost your roster, uh, especially when he's playing at such a high level at, at age 38, which is phenomenal. Um, but, but seriously, um, it the fact that he posted it right at a very emotional time, um, knowing – the number of followers that he has and the platform that he has and the, you know, um, how much, you know, credence people give to his opinion. It was dangerous and it was reckless to put that out there at that time. Um, especially when everybody's emotional and angry and in shock. Um, I personally have not watched the video and I have no intention or desire to watch it. I, I just, I can't move myself to do that anymore. I think it probably was about five or six years ago when I just stopped watching videos. And then I went back and I had to watch the George Floyd video because there was just too much there that was just unbelievable that I just could not imagine. Um, I don't know if I don't plan on watching this video um, because in a lot of ways, and this is my own personal opinion, I think now uh, it's very hurtful to see these images constantly up and to see it all the time. It's almost like uh, during the period of, of lynching 
when lynching was a big issue and they posted the pictures mm-hmm. of, you know, the people just kind of having lunch and just doing their normal tasks, you know, while someone's hanging from a tree. And the image itself was was frightening, but it also sent a message that this could be you too. And that's what scares me, you know, about seeing these images. And especially if you're a child or you're a kid and you get to see this stuff and it's, and it's constantly in your face and it, it creates a fear. Um, and it's a necessary fear. I mean, this is a, we are in a situation where, you know, um, police have been empowered and they abuse that power to the point where they become judge, juror, and execution, executioner, which is just, you know, that's just that's taking it way too far from what their responsibilities are to protect and serve. Um, but I think it's fair game to criticize LeBron, but I also think that it's important too to try to educate him to try to explain to him why it's dangerous. Because I think sometimes, especially when Twitter and social media, the 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 main people think people want to do is dunk on guys. They mm. want to just like make it seem like, oh yeah, you're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. And then it's just like, all of a sudden you see all these comments and it's just negative energy coming your way. You're just going to mute it or you're just not going to pay attention to what needs to be said. And what needs to be said is um, that we need to do some more reading <laughs> about why the situation occurs or we could just listen to KRS-One <laughs> and the sound of the police and he'll tell you about black cops mm-hmm. perpetuating um you know anti-blackness in their actions against uh you know against black citizens and so it's not surprising if you understand the nature of policing uh that this incident occurred and that it involved black officers um as a matter of fact if I'm not mistaken one of the officers in the George Floyd case uh, was not, I mean, who was standing there throughout the whole time um, was black. And so we have to sort of not look at the, the race um, of the of the people who are perpetuating this, this crime, but look at the uniform and really examine why um, these men are in this position, why they are um, treating us this way, you know, just for living and why we continue to empower them. Um, and so for me, the other thing that's, that's upsetting and disappointing is that we've seen these images of police violence and abuse uh, against citizens over and over again. And we've always cried for justice and we've always cried out for you know accountability for these officers. And the first time that we, had, we get swift immediate justice is when the officers are black. And <laughs> it's almost like it's, a, it's another message that's being sent that if you want to uh, subjugate black citizens to unjust violence and death, that you have to have a certain complexion to get away with it. Mm. <laughs> and that that's another issue that we could talk about later, but that or another day. But for for me, I just think that it's important that while people want to criticize LeBron or dunk on him, like I said earlier, that we also try to educate him and explain to him why at that time that wasn't that wasn't the message that needed to be sent out but also explain the whole history of policing and, and why a lot of ways for a lot of officers, it's just sort of a continuation of anti-Blackness. Yeah, I mean, people think, I used the phrase earlier in the show, uh, blue first, black second. That's actually yeah. a police slogan. People think that's a slogan of people, you know, trying to resist police violence as a way to educate people, but that 
I mean, trust me, because I say this because I got some friends. Ugh, it's a whole other story. But but <laughs> blue first, black second is like a phraseology. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I'm, not, I'm not out to say, you know, I, I hate saying this. You know, it's not not every cop is bad, you know, and, yeah. and I have I have uh, family members who, who are in law enforcement. Um, and so and I know why they wound up being in, in law enforcement. Um, and it's a job. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's income. It, it keeps you employed and able to put food on your on your table. Um, you just wish that with that responsibility and power that you handle it delicately and understand that yeah i do have the power to possibly take this person's life or to make their life miserable but how about trying to make their life better you know how about trying to do something to yeah you know protect the people that you that you're supposed to serve but do it in a way that doesn't lead to the slaughter of of of, of people and i i just it's just disheartening it, it's 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 really a a tough um thing because again i always feel like and and this is why i didn't so sort of get caught up in the whole racial awakening of 2020 in george floyd and i have my doubts that that would really lead to change and now you're sort of seeing that there's a resistance to that movement um on the extreme you know um in terms of the resistance to what was what appeared to be gains at that time mm -hmm. and um and that's sort of the nature of American history, whenever there's a slight hint of racial progress, the resistance to it is much uh, fiercer than than what you could imagine. And um, but but, you know, I guess I, I, I appreciate the people who are, you know, you know, leading the marches and, you know, uh, you know, making the statements that need to be said. But when, when it comes to athlete activism, um, I don't necessarily think that I need it. Like, I think sometimes LeBron feels like he has to say stuff mm -hmm. because there have been situations where he's been looked upon to say things and he said the right things at sometimes. But there's also been situations where he didn't either didn't say something or he didn't say the right thing. And it's tough, you know, considering the tough. that he's in and the position he would like to be seen in where he wants to, you know, sort of be, you know, uh, I, I think he, he enjoys the fact that people look to him beyond uh, as more than an athlete, you know, and, but, uh, but again, there's a responsibility that comes with that. And yeah. You know, he has to be more responsible with what he puts out there. Um, and he has to do the reading. He has to understand the history of his country and, and go beyond what he may have, um, you know, learned from school or his friends. <laughs> Yeah, and it is it is tough. I wrote a piece uh, criticizing LeBron years ago for not saying anything about Tamir Rice. Tamir Rice, yeah, I, Actually, I remember when that went down. Like I was hurt. Like yeah, he wouldn't say it in his own backyard. It's know, Ohio, like, you know. You're and, right there. Yeah, and then and then, I, then I took a step back, and I also realized that he's in Ohio. Yeah, and he has to see these people every day, and that, um, and that he also had the potential to set off something in a in a major way that we couldn't even foresee because of who he is and what he represents in that state. And so um Yeah, I would have loved I get this was part of my article is I would have loved him even saying that, but his kind of 
who's that approach. Yeah, it was it was bad. It, it was not handled well. Rough. Um, and 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 at that and at that point, and it, it was at that point that I sort of took a step back because you know this was um, after the Miami Heat and the um, yeah. Trayvon Martin situation when you know that was Orlando, so it wasn't necessarily Miami. So it was sort of a different thing. It wasn't right where he was, um, and uh, and it, he also isn't from Florida, mm. right? You know, but like being an Ohio guy, being from there, being a part of you know that state and that that whole region and sort of understanding what his voice, the weight his voice really carried in that state, you know, um, I, I took a step back too. And, and I was like, you know what, we can't expect athletes to always be able to say the right thing. We can't expect them to be in a position to, uh, to do the right thing, you know, at all times, like, it's just not a fair expectation, but we just have to appreciate the times that they do say something and that, and when they do say, say something that that's needed to be said, like, um, so I, like, I remember when, um, when he called, you know, Trump a bum, you know, at that moment, it was the perfect thing to say, right. Cause this whole thing about the, the warriors not going to the white house and like, they're all, they say they're not, they're not sure about it. And then Trump comes back and takes shots at the warriors, which were unnecessary. And then it's like, okay, well, how do you respond to this? And then here's LeBron with the perfect you bum. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was a, it was a perfect message from from him. And I think it is sort of, um, you know, kind of set the tone for how NBA teams and players responded to that whole administration by not going to uh, going on White House visits, um, especially if you don't respect, you know, who we are and what we do. Um, but I remember when the China situation happened with Daryl Morey's tweet and I saw like there was like, oh, I can't wait till LeBron gets a chance to speak on this. And I'm like, why? what is he going to say? Like, what, what can he possibly say that's going to make everybody happy? It's, for me, I would rather him say, I am not skilled enough or knowledgeable enough of the history of that nation to speak on that and, and, and comfortably speak on that without offending someone, you know, and I, I, I love it. Somebody can say that, but he actually did say something and everybody mm -hmm. got mad. <laughs> I was like, why are you getting mad? He's like, yeah, because I thought he was, you know, he speaks on these issues. Why can't he speak on this issue? It looks like he's he's part of, you know, the whole Nike thing. Da, da, da. And I was like, well, he, he can't be an expert in everything. And we can't ask him to be an expert in everything. Mm -hmm. If he finds a lane that he's comfortable in, let him let him stay there. But also don't expect him to always say something. Because there there is, uh, yeah, it's like we want... Um like him to be somebody who could easily slide into meet the press and yeah, yeah. like as it, if he has it, claimed an expert an expertise in that and i can see like maybe he didn't think this consciously but i really got the sense that he and a lot of nba players on even a subconscious level felt like the china question was the equivalent of what about chicago yeah when talking you know like this idea yeah. of like my god the entire u.s economy is tied up with china yes like we are a debtor nation to china why are they focusing on the nba yeah exactly like we're not the only uh place that does business with china so yeah but i just I caught that like a lot of players being like hmm why, why why us and it is like the what about chicago yeah, and again, it's a situation where we have access to players and we just ask them questions 
And it's just not, it's not really fair, you know, to expect them to, and like I said, you just, you got to appreciate the ones who who do the reading. Like, and, and think about, and, and I think it's what makes guys like Bill Russell and Kareem, you know, so great because they lived it, they understood it, and they could speak on it in a way that I don't know if today's athlete does, but I also think that we're in this, we're in this kind of strange place where they also, they made good money for what they did back then, but it's not like today where like you go to college for one year and then you make this immense amount of money to where you are completely in another stratosphere from the rest of society. So the world that you exist in is not even remotely close to the one you came from anymore. And so to really be connected to that in a real sincere way, it's much harder when you're making, you know, exponentially more money than the person who you're fighting, who you're supposed to be fighting for. And I think that, you know, for like, say, you know, a, a Russell Kareem and, you know, Jim Brown are guys who were coming up in the 60s. They made, like I said, they made good money, but they weren't so far removed from the realities of, you know, being a black person in America, you know, and and, and I think athletes, they, 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 they're still black, right? They, but they also can escape to multi-million dollar mansions and be away, gated off in a gated community and not really a part of everything. And so to expect athletes today, considering the immense wealth that they have to sort of be what, you know, they were during a period where the money um, wasn't really going to prevent, present you with a sense of comfort where you didn't have to say, where you, where you sort of, you sort of had to say something because it really affected you. Um, I, I just, I just, I don't, I don't think it's fair to just throw a mic in their faces and say, please explain to us the situation because it's just not their reality, you know, on a daily basis to that extent. And so I just think we sort of reached a, sort of a weird period in this athlete activism era where um, a lot of guys have a lot of free time, but they're not necessarily investing it in say learning about these, these issues that they want to speak out on <laughs> and they have the financial means where they can escape it um, in a way that that athletes from a different generation couldn't. Now, Michael, you've been really generous with your I'm sorry, that was a long, that was pretty long-winded. I'm no, not sure if that made no, sense. No, 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 no. That's, that, that, that's podcasting, man. Um, <laughs> you know, this isn't WFAN. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, uh, but do you have time for another question? I have, I have a little time, yeah, I have a little time. Because speaking of athletes finding their voice, but extremely complicated repercussions, I want to talk to you about Kyrie Irving. Hmm. Um, Kyrie Irving has been voted as a starter for the Eastern Conference All-Stars. Yeah. And for, for people who don't know who are listening, the vote is divided between fans, players, and media. Yeah. Correct? And hmm. I, um, I, is, that, is it done equally in terms uh, of vote The fan vote, I think, is 50%. It's 50 and then, and then the other two are 25, right? Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know if you saw this, Michael, but Kyrie finished first 
yes. among fans for guards. Yep. First among players for guards, <laughs> and fourth for the media. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could give us a spot analysis of that because obviously it connects to the period where Kyrie posted the video. He bruised to Negroes. Yeah. The team actually asked him to go away. And he's been so brilliant. Like, I'm not surprised about the fan vote. Uh, I think the player vote is interesting to me. It is. And mm-hmm. I'd love to get an analysis of that. And then the media vote is interesting. Because even if you want to <laughs> penalize him for the games he missed, fourth is absurd. So your thoughts, please. <laughs> um, I, I, didn't see the, I didn't see the full breakdown of the media. Do you know who the top three media guards were i don't i don't i just saw an article about first first and fourth yeah yeah yeah. uh (laughs) you know media you know journalists we're all haters so you know like that's just that's just the nature of uh, what we do like we just hate on everybody so of course of course of course we're going to try to bring them down but now i'm I'm jumping there too uh but i I think that when it comes to fans you know it is an all-star game and you know you want to be entertained by guys who can perform and you know, uh, when he when he's when his mouth isn't moving, but his body is, it's it's fun to watch. You know, <laughs> when he's out yeah. there with a basketball and doing things uh, with with the with his dribble and going between the legs and behind the back and spinning and you know playing doing little dances with the rim and, and the backboard. I mean, it's 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 a sight to behold. Like he, when he's focused on basketball, there are not many who can really, uh, you know, compete with just his talent, you know, because he, he is an amazing, amazingly talented basketball player. Um, and so I can see why fans would want that on the, on the because the thing is, um, the one thing too is that fans also don't necessarily pay attention to what, say, media does pay attention to. You know, if you look at just basketball in general, mm-hmm. um Every time we have a vote, you're like, "How did this guy? How did this guy get all these fan votes? Didn't they, don't they watch the games?" And it's like, "No, they don't. They watch. They watch House of Highlights. They watch, mm-hmm. you know, whatever is on ESPN. And if they see a guy putting up, you know, these incredible plays, that's what's going to stay with them. It's not going to be whether he posted from, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, um, an anti-Semitic movie like that. That doesn't even stay in there in them um, uh, for fans like." It, it doesn't last very long if they if they if they're aware of it they're gonna have a very short memory of it um you know going going forward unless you know a writer or someone or tv or a reporter brings it up they're not it's not going to be at the forefront of their their thought process when it comes to voting um but also again fan a lot of fans are not watching games they are not watching uh they're not and they're not reading <laughs> about controversies like this mm. um which is you know say what say what it is say what you will but that's just the nature of fan voting like they just mm. it's not where they're as for players uh i think you could tell from a lot of the statements that came out of the players association and uh even some of the deleted tweets or even some of the confusing tweets that came out after that whole incident when he was suspended uh in some ways there, there became like this anger towards Kyrie that he posted this video, but then there became, there's a backlash to the backlash. Everybody's like, well, now he's being treated unfairly and 
I can't believe that they're 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 suspending him when all he did was just post something on Twitter and like this is unfair and they're asking him to do all these things to get back in good favor to play and that's just you know and then that then it became a Kyrie is a victim story mm-hmm. and so for a lot of players they saw Kyrie as a victim of being treated unfairly and so you know and and also players hold Kyrie in the utmost highest level of respect as a player mm-hmm. because of the things that he does like if you have to guard him you you know that this is a this is a tough task <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to just shut this dude down and he's going to be able to do some things that's going they're going to make you go whoo that's a bad boy it's interesting and, i can't think of a uh an i mean even his biggest fans have to admit Kyrie is a number 2 on a championship team not a number 1 that is of course yeah proven by his whole career in yep. practice yeah. Uh, you know, Boston was his chance, honestly. And he blew it. And he blew it. Blew so it. ran from it. Yes. <laughs> have you ran literally from it? <laughs> have you ever seen a number two in the NBA in recent history held in such high esteem? No, I have not. It is. It's very confusing for me because I felt like. Um, like I said, he had his opportunity. He, he he said, I don't want to be LeBron's little brother anymore. I need my own show. And then uh, he went to Boston and had it set up perfectly, perfectly to lead them to win. They had all the talent in the world. They had who pe- most people thought was a really good coach at the time <laughs> in Brad Stevens. They were like, oh, this Brad Stevens is a genius. You know, it's like, oh, he gets to play for him. How, how great. And then, like, um, he couldn't stay healthy. They went They went further without him than with him. And then he just, you know, tanked it really bad in the playoffs. And, um, you know, so it is it is unusual that, that he gets held in such high esteem. But the one thing that he can always say is this. You get that shot in game seven. Yes. So in the end, and those last three games, you know, uh, you know, LeBron gets all the hype because he, you know, had the block and he did everything else. He had amazing 40-point games and all that stuff. But Kyrie was right there with him. Mm-hmm. You know, putting up monster numbers, and he hit the shot. So mm-hmm. I think from even though he was a number two, uh, when a moment required him to be the man, he stepped up and did it. And I think that that stays with guys. And like when Andre Godala says, he I think he called him a top twenty-five player of all time, which I think is mm-hmm. ridiculous because again, I, I think that you know he's a he's a talented player, but his leadership is not something that <laughs> I would want to put up there you know, one of the top players of all time, you know, because he's, he's failed a lot when given the opportunity and when surrounded by good talent. Um, and I, I think that that has to be held against him in some respects, but for the most part, it's not. Now, media, we definitely scrutinize guys on a much different level. We scrutinize you on, like, how are you performing when Kevin Durant is hurt? How come their record is so horrible <laughs> when he doesn't play <laughs> except while, when, while you play? You know, and how come, you know, uh, you post this video and like, so I think that there is some things that in terms of like how the media would judge him would be, I guess, in my opinion, considered more fair because we're not necessarily fans of his, you know, we're not rooting for him one way or another. We're not cheering for him to fail, of course, but we're also not rooting for him to be one thing or another, the way I think players and fans you have one, I got to ask you another question. As long as you have time, I got to ask you this. Okay. All right. I saw a stat that blew my mind. Um, for those of us who care about the statistic of uh, usage rate, mm. um, 
to me, like the the five candidates for MVP are Jokic, Luka, Tatum, Embiid, and Giannis. That yep. to me is the top five. And it's okay, pretty, I'm with it's it. pretty, yeah, conventional yeah. wisdom, I think. And, you know, and not even that, you can honestly say that this is probably one of the rare times in NBA history where you could say four of the top five best players in the game were all from another country. That is true. That is true, indeed. Um, but yeah, but your question was going to be, I'm sorry, usage rate. Yeah, I, I unbelievable. I saw this stat. <laughs> um, of those five people, uh, four of them are in the top seven in terms of usage rate. Not too surprising that Embiid is one, Lucas two. Um, Giannis and then uh, Tatum. And Tatum. Jokic. Yes. Is 28. <laughs> yeah. 28. Yeah. And so I, I ask you. In averaging 10 assists a game. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, while, yeah, with a 28 usage rate averaging a triple-double. I ask you, first of all, can anyone at one, given how well the Nuggets are playing, I mean, as much Jokic fatigue as we may have, don't we have to see him as the front runner for MVP? And two, are we ready to say that this is maybe not only the most unique player of, our, of a generation, but a generationally important talent? Yeah, I think I think that it's Tom. I mean, I think, you know, winning the championship would obviously mm-hmm. raise him and elevate him in the eyes of most fans. Because I think a lot of people are saying, well, if he's so great, how come they haven't gotten past the conference finals? Or how come they lost in the first round last year? How come they lost to, the, uh, to, uh, to, to Phoenix uh, a couple of years ago? Like, how come he's not able to you know, take it? Well, look who he's surrounded by. Look at the health of the players that are supposed to be expected to to carry him, you know, to to a ring as well. Um, but, um, and I, I'll say just say that Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., they're healthy now. Uh, they have assembled a really solid team around him with role guys who understand what they're supposed to do. KCP, um, yeah, KCP was an amazing pickup. Mm-hmm. I, I, thought, I thought he fit perfectly for what they need, just from giving him an extra defender. And the guy who can hit open shots. I think the Lakers kind of miss him having a guy like that on their team. Because again, understanding your role and playing it to the best—that's an underrated skill. Because a lot of guys in the league are confused as to what who they are and what they're supposed to be. They still think I was the man in high school or I was the man in college, so I'm I'm the man here. And like, no, here you need to be this if you want to succeed and have a long career. And KCP's figured that out, and uh, and he's playing you know really well in his role. So I just think the Nuggets are just they're a really well-built team. They're a well-coached team. And it's weird that people don't you know, talk about Jokic as being the favorite for MVP. Not enough people talk about the Nuggets being the favorite for the for the championship. You know, not enough people are saying that this Nuggets team is legit. You know, they've been they've been legit for a long time. And now they have really solid character guys. Uh Jamal Murray's getting healthy and he's starting to look like his pre-injury self. You know, Porter's playing it pretty well, too. And they got Bones Highland coming off the bench, and he's he's lighting it up every now and then. So this is a very fun team. But Jokic is amazing. I I, I go back. I had the pleasure when I first uh, was at Yahoo, my uh, first couple of months, I got to spend about three days in the uh, coaching room with uh, Michael Malone 
and his staff. And I got to like sit in on meetings, watch film sessions and everything. And the and I remember watching Jokic. This was his rookie year. And and they they they, they couldn't play him a lot. They were still trying to figure it out. They still had um uh Nurkic. Nurkic and they had a, another guy too, I forget his name, he was French. They had these these big guys and there was such a rotation, they didn't know who to play. And and so um, but he stood out. Like mm. in every and everything he did, like he was this excellent passer. He just had such an amazing feel for the game. And I remember being at a practice and uh and Mike Miller was on that team and and everybody just sort of saw Jokic as like their little brother. And they just all loved him. And he he just had this spirit about him that everybody just felt good just being around him. Because he just he had just this he just loved playing basketball. There was no ego to him. And none of this stuff seemed to really get to him. Like that he was a second round pick. I mean, he was competitive. I mean, he felt like he should be playing. You know, he didn't want to come off the bench. Like, I mean, he's a competitor. Um, but he has such a spirit about him, and everybody on the team rooted for him. And when you have guys like that, that those those type of guys that you feel good seeing succeed, that you root for, yeah. goes a long way in a locker room. And to see him, you know, go from second round pick to being a starter to then being a guy who takes you to the Western Conference Finals to then being an MVP, like you're not sitting around being jealous of that guy. You're not sitting around saying, oh, he ain't all that. No, because you know the work he put in. And if you ever talk to Jokic, he does not get caught up in this. Mm. He's not chasing the MVP. Mm. He really, he's not. I mean, he'll he'll take two shots in the first half of a game and look at the, you know, not even look at the boss score or care that he took two shots because they're up 20. And for him, that's what the whole point of the game is. And and I, I love I love Joel Embiid. I, I've, I've been... Found him from the minute he was able to step foot on a basketball court in the NBA because I think I thought he I thought he's like man this guy's amazing. And I had a, a friend I'm not friend I had a guy from Philadelphia he had asked me like um, who would you rather have Jokic or Embiid and I said Jokic and I didn't really hesitate and he's like yeah and I and I said well the one thing is this you know Embiid is going to get you 40 he's going to dominate mm-hmm. maybe 15 rebounds couple blocks and it's going to look just totally, totally dominant because he's going to bully you and he's going to just do- try to dominate. Right you. That's, what, that's his, his whole thing is domination, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a way you can dominate at least, but there's a way that Jokic dominates where he doesn't even need the ball. You know, there's a way he can just elevate everybody around him. Uh, he can find the open guy. He's such an amazing decision maker. When the ball is in his hands, he's not going to make a dumb decision. He's going to find guys before they even realize they're open. You know, he's going to get cutters. He's going to, and, and then if he, if he has a matchup situation where he can abuse it, he's going to just go to town on whoever is not yeah. supposed to be guarding him at that moment. And he's, so, so he's, he's got this crazy mix of humility because he doesn't really care about the limelight or the spotlight, but confidence because he knows that if he has to, he'll bust you. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 kind of like um, Mike Malone sort of compared. He said, you know, he never had a chance to coach, say Tim Duncan, but being mm-hmm. around Jokic, he can see it, like what it would have been like, mm-hmm. because Tim Tim was the same way, where you know you watch and you see Kevin Garnett out there, 
and he's all animated and cursing and, you know, doing all this stuff and talking all this trash and dunking on people and, you know, running down the court and letting you know, you know, all that stuff, barking. And then you got Tim on the other end, who's just like, okay, can I just get the ball, please? I'm just going to hit this mm-hmm. off the backboard, you know, for the rest of the night, and you're not going to stop it? And I'm not going to say anything, <laughs> but we're going to come away with this win. And I think that's sort of where Jokic is, where he's just like, you know, yeah, sure, you can go out there and hunt it. You can go out there and chase it. You can chase yeah. stardom. You can chase the money. You can chase the the, mm-hmm. the fame. You can chase all this adulation, all these accolades. And you might get it if you chase it. But if you chase the right things, if you chase winning games, if you chase trying to get a championship, if you chase trying to be the best version of myself, if you chase trying to make everybody around me better so that when the time comes and we're going to need these guys to step up to make plays if I'm getting double team or I'm having an off night, um, if we chase all that stuff, then all the accolades and awards and everything will come with it. But you have to be honest about what what your pursuit is. And and I think that's why he's getting all the attention now and people sort of appreciate him as he as he sort of continues to build this 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 amazing legacy. I said this guy's a second round pick, but he just he's focused on the right things. And I I don't know if other kids are watching him play. Like you're not gonna really be able to duplicate. Jokic, because he's just such a unique playing style. Like he's got this dad bod. He's just out, <laughs> just sort of, um, you know, playing this style of basketball. It's just unorthodox. He's got these awkward kind of hook shots and everything, and so you don't know where his shots coming from. But if you're watching him and you see the um, the sincerity about him and what mm-hmm. matters to him, that's why he is as great as he is because he's not he's not concerned about commercials or endorsements or all the other things that seem to be what you need to have that stamp that you're great. Um, he's not, he's not concerned about all that stuff. And I, I think that's why for a lot of media, you know, who wind up eventually voting for the awards, they lean toward a guy like that um, because they can sort of see that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the success that his team is having is a lot related to his talent his spirit, which I mentioned earlier, you got to have a positive spirit. You know, if, if you if you are going to go through a really grueling season where you got the ups and downs and losing streaks and um, just the physical grind and toll that it takes on your body, but if you have the right spirit, um, it can take you a long way. And that's why the Nuggets are where they are right now. Absolutely. Interestingly enough, playing the Sixers as for when we're recording this podcast – um later today uh nuggets i'll be there all right so we'll find (laughs) out what happens take care of yourself i think that might be a raucous one oh Um, yeah it'll be fun (laughs) by the way my favorite underrated part of this entire nba season was on the same day kevin kevin uh durant mocking the idea of rivalry week saying there aren't real rivals in the nba and then that night Nets seventy sixers, and B had it going. He was, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, no rivalries, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think for him, he, he he thinks he needs to see it, you know, where it matters. Ah, uh, in the in the, in the postseason, and, and right now, there aren't a lot of teams that have met up in the postseason that had 
you know, significant battle yet. You know, the, the Cavs Warriors is 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 gone. Yeah. And uh Memphis sure. Warriors might be something down the road, but it it's, mm-hmm. it really can't be there unless Memphis can really ascend to like a conference finalist type team. And I feel uh, maybe like Memphis T Wolves should be something. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. I mean, like I said, there's there's a lot of young talent. There's a lot of potential for something, but you know, that's a good point. It's, it's got it's got to, it's got to happen. And like you know, when you think about rivalry week, there's really only one rivalry in the NBA that matters. You know, historically, Knicks Celtics. Uh, you say what? Knicks Celtics. I I was thinking of another team that has you know, <laughs> uh, seventeen championships. Oh. <laughs> So not the Knicks Celtics. Yeah, not, okay. not the one, not the one that's 15 fewer championships. No. Oh man, that hurts. Uh, <laughs> the Knicks, the Knicks, the Knicks are fun though this year. Um, they, they are more fun. fun. They're not talented enough no. to change the fact that it's the city game, it's the best arena, it's the media center of the globe, and it can't put together a championship basketball team. It's a staggering indictment. No, they can't. And 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 I forget, was it Gilbert Arenas? Is that something interesting about the Knicks? About the fact that the um MSG is actually uh it works against the Knicks because every player oh. who comes there is determined to put on a show and, yeah. and, and make a name for himself in, in the garden. Is, and, is that some Jordan legacy stuff, or do you think it's pre-Jordan? Because that was Jordan's thing. Which yeah, but I'm saying every every everybody's come. Everybody's realized that you can make a name if you if you ball out at MSG. Reggie Miller did it. I mean, I think Reggie Miller is a Hall of Famer. Ninety percent of what he did to the Knicks. Absolutely, he's a great player. I'm not taking anything away from him, but the fact that he had those performances against the Knicks, the fact that like, he was, I think he Hall of Famer no matter what career yeah. wise. But the fact that he was a slam dunk first ballot. ballot. Hall of yeah. Famer when Chris Webber had to wait like a lifetime, yeah, to get voted in. That absolutely is about big game performances against the Knicks and, to a lesser extent, the Bulls. Yeah, but I mean, it really like if if he had the this uh, he had the choke thing yes. against the Cleveland Cavaliers, nobody really would care. Right. Nobody care. But, but he and did it against the Knicks. He did it to Spike Lee. Like Spike he did it to. Lee. And so that 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 helped elevate him. And so a lot of players know that if you go to MSG. Like Trey, Trey Young has shoes, call himself mm-hmm. the king of New York, you know, because of what he did against the Knicks. And um, and so everybody knows when you when you go there and you put on a show, not only are you going to get the attention, but if you put on a good enough show, Knicks fans will give you love. Yeah. They won't boo you because they, 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 it's, it's the theater for them. They want to they want to be entertained. And if you give them a good show, they'll reward you with their cheers. And if you're a Knicks player. You go sit down and you're like, dang, they can't even boo this guy. Yeah, yeah I, hear I, really, I really hope the Trey Young thing was not a flash in the pan because I feel like he was set up to be the next great villain. But then when the team you come from is this soap operatic quasi train wreck, <laughs> it just yeah. makes it a lot less interesting than like those Pacers teams that were so successful and buttoned up yep. and the Davis yeah. brothers and all of that. Yep. Mark Jackson and yeah. And Rock Rick Smith's. Yeah. Those, those are some fun teams. Absolutely. Uh, Detlef. Ah, yeah. Yeah. the Swiss army knife, but you've been so generous with your time, Michael. My goodness. Any music you're listening to that you want to share? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always listening to 
the latest uh, Nas. <laughs> mm. Um, and uh, and I actually, I just found this jazz musician. It is a brother by the name of Emmanuel Wilkins. Okay. And he has a song called Fugitive Ritual. Like, I heard it, and was just completely blown away. Like, it's just a beautiful song. Like, it's just relaxing. It just puts you in this serene place. It's just a calming song. Like, um, I used to uh, play it, like, when I gave my little uh, toddler son his bath or whatever. It just set the mood to kind of just be calm. Uh, But it's a beautiful song. Uh, Fugitive Ritual. Right on. By Emmanuel Watkins. Oh, I think you said Wilkins the first. I'm sorry, Wilkins. Emmanuel Wilkins. Yeah, Emmanuel Wilkins. Cool. I'm glad I caught that. Yeah. Um. See, that's the the pro podcaster. <laughs> yeah. But yo, it's a beautiful song. Michael, enjoy the game tonight. I have a feeling it's going to be consequential, uh, or this afternoon, I should say. Yeah. I have a feeling it's going to be consequential, and thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, man. Hey, anytime, man. It's always good to get here and chop it up with you because I know that you don't. Excuse me, ask me some some tough questions that uh <laughs> you did you, you were you were great with them. It was it, it's a it's a tough morning. So yeah, tough questions sure. and some and definitely some tough answers. So thank you, Michael. All right, man. Take care, have a great day. You too. Be well. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. Uh, the Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! To, obviously, to me, goes to every single athlete who has amplified our anger about what happened to Tyree Nichols. And yeah, I do think like actual criticism of what... LeBron said is important because this is not an issue of black on black violence. This is an issue of white supremacy uh, and police violence and the over policing of the black community. So just stand up to everybody there. Um, And LeBron, even for bringing stuff up and, and starting this kind of friction and debate, I think is very important. The Just Sit Down Award this week goes to the administration, actually, of Karen Bass, the mayor of Los Angeles. Uh, A lot of us were hoping for some change with Karen Bass in terms of the approach of L.A. to the Olympics. But one of her first acts was to select Christopher Thompson to be her chief of staff. Thompson was the head of government relations for the L.A. 28 Olympic Organizing Committee. Thank you, my man, uh, Jules Boykoff, for hipping me to this. And now the head of government relations is part of and indistinguishable from the city government itself. Please just sit down.
Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you for everybody for listening. Thank you, Ian Kennedy and Michael Lee. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.